Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Island Spot Sports. And before we get to our guest today, we have a big shout out for Living Sisu. Living Sisu is a platform and app that wants to give you all the tools to have success in your sport. Their main objective is to activate your lifestyle. So for active, it's for active people. Enjoy discounts at, at companies like BioSteel, 30% off, BodyLogics, the Goalie Guild, all his books are discounted. Roan, Lululemon for men, 20% off. Online stretching programs with Eccentrics, one full month free. They got super silent massage guns, 20% off those. And it's a great quality. It's way less expensive than a Theragun. And it's a great, it's great quality. So there's so many more discounts that you guys will need to just become a member to see. So they want to provide you with anything you need for success. So come join the community. I'm a part of it. A bunch of other athletes are a part of it. So it's free to join. It takes 20 seconds to have to get exclusive offers to your sport. And it's definitely worth worth it. So do do us a huge favor and go sign up for Living Sisu's membership. It's free, 20, takes 20 seconds. So go do it and we'll see you there. Living Sisu is a great company. We uh, we know one of the co-founders, Zach Fricali. He's a great guy. He uh, He's the co-founder and he does a lot of live streams on Instagram at, uh, at Living Sisu. And with a bunch of elite athletes and you learn a lot from like the athletes determination the resiliency everything to what me made them become successful so it's been a great experience so far so go on i'm gonna leave uh the link in the description so uh go sign up go welcome back to another episode of on the spot sports i'm jack in today's episode we are joined by a very special guest former professional hockey player christopher stieg chris most notably is a two-time stanley cup champ with the chicago blackhawks in 2010 and 2015 chris spent 11 years in the nhl with the chicago blackhawks toronto maple Leafs, calgary flames philadelphia flyers carolina hurricanes florida panthers and the los angeles kings and then played couple seasons in the KHL, SHL, and then over in Slovakia before playing part of his last season of pro hockey, being the captain of the Rockford Icehawks of the American Hockey League. So it's an honor to have you on, Chris. So welcome to the show, Chris Versteeg. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, to start things off, like, how are, how are things with going for you? Like, you're in post-career hockey. So, like, how's everything going post-career? Post career is even crazier. I got two kids in hockey. I'm a hockey dad, hockey coach. Uh, got a new company, so everything's busy. It's a lot different. It's uh, you know I'm not getting yelled at by Q anymore. I'm getting yelled <laughs> at by my kids. So it's changed, which is great. I still would rather you know I'd still like to go back and relive those glory days getting yelled at again. But now it's my kids, you know, telling me where to go and how to get there. Yeah, there's no uh, no off day for you still, and like you just gotta Ever. keep going, grind, grind, don't stop. Yeah, I feel like it is Bill Belichick yelling, yelling that every day in my life. <laughs> that that's unreal. That's unreal. But uh, start things off, like, can you give like our viewers a little background information on yourself? Like, obviously, everyone probably knows you by now. But like, what made you start playing hockey? What made you start playing the game of hockey? How old were you, and like, what really made you fall in love with the game? Yeah. So uh, again, I was starting to skate around three. My dad would bring me to the rink uh, with my grandfather. He'd throw me out there and it was kind of a, a sink or swim is from what I uh, remember. 
he also bought me a, a green Lethbridge Broncos mini hockey stick. I remember, you know, playing in my living room every single day, having my grandmother, mother, parents, you know, anyone be the goalie. And that's where, you know, I personally have very vivid memories of being five and six years old, going to the rink. They used to call it youth hockey then. So I, I played church yeah. hockey until I was six years old. And, uh, you know, it wasn't soon after that. We were basically left the church, but I don't need to go into that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, so we went, you know, I played youth hockey at six, but where I really started to love it was there's a hockey school called Coldale Hockey School, which I actually end, I own now, but it, it ended up getting purchased by the Sutter Brothers about a year later. And I would go there in the morning, I'd go on the ice, I'd go to the water slides, I'd come back, I'd do my skating and I'd get off. And I remember that week was a week that every year I'd be so excited to get back on the ice again. It was, you know, it's not like today where you have a skating coach and all these other skill coaches. It was like, you know, I go play soccer all summer. And then at seven, I would get there. I'd go on the water slides, play a little hockey with my buddies. And that's where I first started to develop like a true real love for the game. I was like, man, I can't wait to get hockey season going. I can't wait for this feeling and the excitement and the joy of trying out and being on a new team and having teammates. So that's my first real vivid memories of love for the game. And then kind of from there, it just would grow. I would go outside every single day by myself. I would shoot tennis balls. Uh, you know, I didn't have a, a dryer or anything to shoot pucks against too much. We had it in our basement a little later on, but every single day going outside and playing street hockey and road hockey and thinking of things creatively, what I can do out there on the street that I could take it into a hockey game. And yeah, it was just, you know, that's where the love would grow. I'd bring it back on the ice and try to execute what I would learn down there. But just, uh, you know, I've, I loved it ever since uh, I could remember really. Yeah, that, that's unreal. And like, especially like when you go play soccer and then like you take that, those off days and then you go into a, into playing hockey and go by the water slides and all that. And then you're playing with your buddies. Like there's no better feeling than that. And just getting back into the game and like you just create so many memories with all your, all your friends back, back in the day. And just like, you're, you just, you look back on those memories and you're like, wow, like I really cherish those memories. Yeah. It's kind of funny. So again, I didn't have skills coaches, skating coaches. I did those type of camps until I was 15 years old, 14 years old. So I remember going to the school at Sylvan Lake, same thing. You go in the morning, you skate, uh, you go to the water slides at noon, you have lunch, you go back on the ice. And I, while I was at the camp, one of my friends who was 15 was teaching at the camp or 14 turning 15. He's like, what are you coming to this hockey school still for? You should be teaching it. I'm like, man, I can go to the water slides. I can hang out with everyone. He's like, but it's not for elite hockey players. It's for, you know, at this age, it was more for, yeah. you know, the A, the double A or the A players and the house league players that still wanted to get on the ice, but have fun. I yeah. was like, for me, I didn't want to be serious. I just wanted to go to the water slide. So I was still doing those schools until I was basically 15 years old while all the other guys were teaching at it. Uh, the kid's name is Kyle Pess. He's a friend of mine. And I ended up playing in junior with him, played two years in the WHL with him. But it's always funny. Me and him both look back on that time. He's like, remember when I was teaching you at hockey school when you were going to it? I was like, yeah, I was I was on the water slides while you were working. Yeah, I'd rather be on the on the water slides than working and just being able to not being able to have uh, as much fun as you are, like when you're when you're a student there and playing the game and just having everyone t teach you. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, that was a great hockey school as well.
Yeah, those are those are great times. Like you said, the best memories are made. Yeah, exactly. But you grew up in in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, over in Canada. So, like, how, what was the competition like over in in Alberta, especially like going in Lethbridge and throughout youth hockey and church hockey and all that? Well, I remember my dad said in church hockey, you know, you could have a five-year-old, six-year-old like me, and you'll be playing against 11-year-olds. And he was like, you know, obviously at six years old, you're better than all the 11-year-olds. So the competition at youth hockey isn't isn't very good and very elite. But again, it wasn't players that played more than once a week or really cared to play. I think it was more just exercise and getting kids around each other. Now, um, you know, once I got to minor hockey, that's where you could see the competition. There's actually, it's, it's crazy how many kids my age turn pro from Lethbridge. Lethbridge has about 60,000 people. And from our Bantam team, we have three NHL hockey players and seven pro hockey players. So we have a bit of an anomaly of a year. There was basically 50 years prior to us where people born and raised in Lethbridge played in the NHL. So it was a bit of an anomaly that three of us end up making it. But that's where I would start to get around these better players. And there was a good level of competition. And, you know, in Southern Alberta, in the area, it was, uh, it was like a tough mindset. You kind of compare it to Boston. It was just the way the guys yeah. like to play. It wasn't like, a, I was a bit strange because I was more of a skilled player. But if you wanted to play in Southern Alberta and, and in Calgary and in the area, especially in the mid 90s and the 90s, if you were to play hockey, you had to play hard hockey. You were going to get slashed. You were going to get hit from behind. You were going to get elbowed in the head and you had to take a lot of abuse. So that's the way the hockey was played then, especially in Southern Alberta. And that's how we like to play. And I'm glad it's not like that anymore, but the level of competition overall was really good. We'd always go to Calgary, Edmonton, you know, we'd play teams from Saskatchewan and the way hockey is set up there is a little different than it is out east. It's you, you always play as an underage and an overage. Where out in out east, you always play against your own age bracket. Yeah. So obviously, as an underage, it's always a lot more difficult, especially at hitting when we were hitting at 11, 12. And there was kids that were 12, 13 already hitting puberty. And I was like, you know, 100 pounds just trying not to die basically yeah. most nights as an underage playing PWA. So um, the competition was always good, but again, you're always playing against the older kids one year, which made it a lot tougher. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Just like, it's like you're, you're the skill player and you're going after going against like these hard nosed, hard nosed players. Like what, what do you do to help yourself not get killed every night? Honestly, I, I think back and there's a, there's a lot of coaches I were coached by that always said, thank God you're not six foot two be, or like your brother. Cause my brother's six two, because he's like, there'd be dead bodies everywhere. Like he would always joke because guys would attack me. They would come after me. They'd cross check me in the head, cross check me in the neck. I remember you can ask anyone who kind of grew up in our area or era or before. I mean, your forearms were literally dented from all the slashing, right? It was just a lot different of a time. The slashes were allowed to go, the cross checks, uh, the hooking. And it, it was just, it was something that kind of, you know, I had to act crazier than I was. And if you didn't stick up for yourself or you didn't full on whack a guy back or go back at him, they would know they had you and they would abuse, like they would abuse you the rest yeah. of the night, basically. They would take advantage of you being, you know, not tough enough or not, not strong enough. So, you know, I had a lot of rough nights with my dad coming home. My dad would be like, why did you slash that guy in the back as hard as you could? 
And I'm like, well, he whacked me like five times. And if I keep letting him whack me and I don't stick up for myself, he's yeah. going to keep whacking me. Right. So I did have a, I definitely did have a trigger where at some point I was going to stick up for myself and you had to, you really did. I look back, I'm like, you know, I'm thankful I did. Maybe I sometimes took it over the line too much uh, and got suspended for it, but it was just the way the hockey was played then. And it was the thing you had to do in order to not, you know, get taken advantage of, especially as a smaller player. Yeah, I feel like especially as like a smaller player, like you have to stick up for yourself a lot more because everyone's everyone's in the game keeps getting bigger and bigger too, and like you just gotta do whatever you can to to help to prove that you can play there as well as playing like that gritty and hard nosed game. Yeah, I, I I try to explain it like every time I saw it, like, again I was always between you know a little below average. I'm five ten now, but. Um, always a little bit below average to average height. If I ever seen anyone smaller to me, I would go after them. So I could only imagine me being smaller yeah. than 99% of the people on the ice in those days, what they felt about me. Right. So that's how I always compared is they were always thinking, Hey, there's a smaller guy on the ice. I'm 11, 12 years old. Now I can hit, I'm going to blow this guy up as hard as I can. Yeah. And, and that's generally what happened. So you had to keep your head up, honestly, all game, every game, and they used to actually, we, we'd always play this other Lethbridge team. And I think about it now, like just how crazy it was, but they had this designed playoff, a face-off where one guy would hold me and my other, and another guy who is, it is my best friend, Rob Klinkhammer. He would come in and blow me up and he would hit my head, my body, wherever it would be, but they would hold me up off the opening draw. And the one guy would come in and blow me up. And that was just a face-off play that they had to contain me at, yeah. you know, at 12 years old. It's crazy to think about, but that's just the way the game was and how it was. And you're playing against your friends too, and they're doing that to you. But I would get up and I would slash Rob as hard as I could and back of the legs or in the arm. And I generally go to the penalty box, but that's just how it was. So yeah, you had to, you had to be ready. Yeah. And then off the ice, it's, it's just like any, any normal, like kid, kid and kid interaction. Like you just, you forget about the game and just yeah. uh, have fun with the, with the boys. Yeah, after the game, it always you kind of look at each other after, especially when you're playing your own city, you know, because our city would always make two teams. And yeah, you go for ice cream, you go, you know, talk to everyone, hang out with everyone after you'd literally, I, I look at my own kids team now, it's obviously different, but the, the yeah. biggest competitors and the most competition will happen against your friends, right? Yeah. Me, and, me and Rob Klinkhammer, we'd both be playing in the NHL. We basically dropped the gloves with each other in summer hockey every summer because we went the hardest at each other, right? And we're the ones who pushed each other further and harder than we could ever push each other. But that's what the friends do, right? You get angry at your friends and anyone, your teammates, yeah. And generally the best competition gets brought out of you and the, and the, you know, the best play, but you always need a referee to contain the, the craziness that, that can transpire. Oh yeah. But like, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there with like your friends, like you're going to, you're going to try to outdo them no matter, no matter what game or what, or if it's even is at a practice, like, you know, that brings out the best in everyone, especially like when you guys are all battling for, for position for all his time and just like to see who's the better better athlete of the friend group exactly there's there's a hierarchy to it. there's definitely a, a peacocking that goes on you want to be the best one out of your like especially when you're young right you're like i want to yeah. be the best one out of all my friends and then your other friends like i want to be the best one but you're still there's a level of respect because you are yeah. best friends but you also have to have that level of compete with each other to drive each other to be better 
And you're right there. There is that aspect to it. It's it's uh, it's an interesting and it's interesting and there's a fine line and it can cause some it can cause some actual shit at times. But the best yeah. friends always stay together and the best ones push each other. Yeah, absolutely. So then you play throughout minor hockey and you go on to find a path to the WHL with uh, with the Lethbridge Hurricanes. So like what was that path and like that prog process to find uh, Lethbridge in the dub? Well, I wasn't drafted to the WHL at 14. Um, back in the day, it's still the, the draft is at 15, the age of no 14, sorry. And back in the day, uh, you had to play AAA as a 14 year old underage in order to get drafted. And me and all my buddies, we obviously didn't make AAA as a first year. So we played AA. So none of us were drafted except Devin Setaguchi, um, but none of us were drafted. And so basically from there, I went and played as an overage the next year. And I had the opportunity to get listed by a few teams and Lethbridge was obviously one of them. And that's my hometown team. So I chose to get listed by Lethbridge. Uh, the next year as a 16 year old, it was the first time you can play junior. I was actually trying out for a junior A team a week prior to that, the Crows past Timberwolves. I had a great tryout, played really well. And at the end of the tryout, the coach brought me in and said, I'm too small and I'm going to cut you. So I then end up, and the junior A is actually a, a big step below the WHL. Yeah. So the next week I go to the WHL tryout, I have a really good tryout and I end up making the WHL team as a 16 year old. So that, that kind of happened there where, you know, you get, you get, I guess, um, cut from a, a junior A team, you end up making a major junior team a week later and you walk on and then the rest is kind of history. I ended up playing as a 16 year old, uh, go into a 17 year old season. Uh, no one ranked me in the NHL draft as a 17 year old. I didn't think I was going to get drafted. I ended up having a good team Canada for them in Belarus. And, and that's where Boston said they decided to take me in the fifth round. I still didn't think I was going to get drafted. There's apparently two teams looking to draft me. And uh, so going from an unranked NHL draft pick player to getting drafted in the, the fifth round is pretty crazy. I was at my graduation the night before. Uh, like I wasn't even watching the NHL yeah. draft, right? There was two days to the draft back in the day. I'm at my NHL grad or I'm at my high school graduation. I'm pretty much on the front lawn with my ex-girlfriend grabbing me out of the car because I was like, I was pretty intoxicated. Right. And you're yeah. sitting on the front lawn. My mom comes out, she's crying, telling me I'm drafted, you know, it's seven in the morning, basically. So it was uh, it was a moment that I don't really remember very well, but it was a moment that I didn't think I was even going to have. So that kind of puts you at the mindset I had. And, and then kind of from there, you know, had a couple tough years in junior, but found my way as a 19 year old in pro. And, and that's where my, my career took off as a pro, but going back to Lethbridge, I spent three years in Lethbridge playing for my hometown and friends in front of friends and family. And, and it was a moment that, you know, I wouldn't trade for anything. I got to be with my mom those three years. She definitely needed me during that time. And I'm very grateful for it. Yeah. So like you go into the, that junior A camp, like you said, and you get cut and then like because of your height and you're like, shit, I got to go to the, the dub camp next week. Like what's your mindset throughout like that next week preparing for the dub camp, especially like after you just got cut from junior A? Well, I went home and I burnt that jersey for so the junior A jersey. I burnt it in a trash can. I still remember it lit it on fire. I did it. It was kind of like a little ceremony I used to do. I used to take all the teams I was cut. I'd throw it in the fire or I'd throw it. I'd light it on fire and my mom would come outside and be like, what's going on? You know, in the backyard, I'd be like, don't worry about it. I'm just lighting this on fire. 
And uh, so I remember going home and I, I, when I was watching this Jersey burn, I still was thinking, I'm like, you know, what can I do? Like, I need to be better, I guess. Do I need to be bigger? I can't be bigger. Like I can't physically get bigger. What can I do? You know, and you know, you have a little bit of a soul searching moment. Uh, I go to the next week and I just remember saying, Hey, I'm just going to take this anger basically and put it into my play. I went to rookie camp and absolutely tore up rookie camp. And they brought me to main camp. And I still remember in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm not going to make the hurricanes. I just want to show them what I can do because obviously I've just been cut. And as the main camp kept going on, I kept scoring and scoring and scoring and doing well. And then all of a sudden they're like, we're going to keep you around for the first week. And I remember going in and Brian Maxwell was the coach. I'm like, Hey, when are you going to send me to midget? He goes, well, we're not sending you to midget. You're going to play here the whole year. He goes, stop. I mean, he's like, stop effing thinking you're going back to midget, just prepare to play here. And that's kind of where my mindset flipped from thinking, you know, am I going to go back to play midget hockey or am I going to be, you know, in the junior full-time? And that's where Brian kind of let me be at ease and think, Hey, I'm, I'm now a full-time WHL player at 16, which I didn't think was going to happen. Um, I put myself in a, a position to let it happen, but yeah, it was, uh, it was great though. I still remember that conversation with Maxie, like it was yesterday. Yeah, that that must have hit hard because like you're thinking about going back to midgets and then he's like, you're staying here full time. And like you, you just got to flip that mindset because once you think about like going like going back down to midgets, like that's when your game play, your game plays, your performance is going to go downhill because you're thinking about not the yeah. current like place you're in, but like what's going to happen next week or the day after after that today or whatever. And that's exactly kind of what happened. I remember at the end of camp, my, or no, it was the camp was done. Sorry. It was like the start of the season. My play was dipping a little bit. And it's cause when Maxi brought me in again, there's a few choice words. It was like, what's wrong almost. Right. And I'm like, well, when are you sending me back to midget? You know, why am I still here? I want to go play basically. And he's like, yeah. told me to shut the F up, you know, focus on being here because you're here now. So again, I, I would love I would love for people to really see what Brian Maxwell's voice sounded like. He, he sounded like, you know, you know, Versteeg, yeah. shut the F up. Just, you know, it's, he was a comical guy, crazy coach or a great coach, you know, great coach for his time. But yeah, those, that's a very, um, that's a very vivid memory of a meeting I still have today was when he kind of gave me the, okay, but you're right. It flipped my mindset. Yeah, for sure. So then you go into your first year of juniors where you play in like 58 games, 57 games so like what was that first year of juniors like and taking that big step from triple a the year before to the dub it was crazy um playing in the nhl when i was growing up didn't seem fathomable or fathomable i can't even say the word right now it was something that i i would think about but junior was like everything you know i would go to every lethbridge hurricane game when i could I had a couple Lethbridge Hurricanes, Todd McIsaac, number 10. It's why I wear number 10 um, is, you know, he lived just a few doors down. He'd come outside and played floor or uh, road hockey with me and help me, you know? So these are the guys I looked up to. And that first year was like, wow, I, I made it. It was almost a feeling like I made it. I can play in junior and I'm playing in front of 5,000 people and people are watching me play. It was a, it was a real cool memory, but it was also like, holy hell, like uh, Derek Bugard is on the other team and Scheffelmeyer and Brandreth and all these crazy guys in Medicine Hat. And there was, and, you know, we had crazy guys too, DJ King and 
um, Derek Parker and, and Paul McBride. And these are guys that I would be on the ice with because I played on the fourth line. So every time I was on the ice, I would center our fourth line with, you know, Derek Parker and DJ King. And we would go against, you know, uh, Derek Bugard and, and all these guys. And I remember most nights being like, I pray to God, I leave this game, like just within, in one piece, you know, it was, it was a lot of learning to survive that year. It was a lot of learning, you know, what it's like to be a junior hockey player. There was a lot of, it was just a massive learning experience. I was, you know, I would like to say I was prepared for it and I was not at all. I, you know, I, I just played minor hockey before that. Now I'm in junior and, and life's a lot different, especially in the early two thousands. Like it was a lot different than it is now. Right. So the game was different. The rules were still the old rules with the hooking and the slashing. And that was prior to the 2004 lockout. So it was, again, it was a lot of nights just trying to survive. It was crazy. Yeah. So then you play, go, go in and play a season of juniors. Like what are some of the biggest takeaways you took away, especially like when you're playing a fourth line role against these big guys, these tough guys, and then like just learning the junior hockey game. Yeah. It was just systems. I never really played systems prior to junior. It was just go on the ice, play hockey, you know, and then you get to junior and they're like, Hey, we're going to take the neutral zone away and we're going to do this. And I'm like, what is going on right now? Like, I didn't know what systems were yeah. my first year junior. It was just, you know, kids start to learn systems and different things earlier now, which I still don't fully agree. Just handcuffing kids with systems at a young age, but I didn't know any of that. So my biggest takeaway was, wow, there is much more to the game than just going out and working hard and playing the game. There's a lot of tactics that go into it. And those are things that I had to learn and how to basically maximize my game within those tactics. Yeah, for sure. And like, I, I didn't learn systems till high school. And like, you just learn so much about the game when you do learn systems at the, and like, you're just like, wow, it's not like, it's not like you just go out there, work hard. Like it's actually like systematic and like, you just got to follow, like you, you have to be in this position, that position at that time. Like it's just all over the place, but it's a, it's fun. Some of those systems that you, that you could play. Yeah, it's fun. There was one system that we played in junior. I remember it was like, holy, like we're not skating. This is boring. And then there's other ones, you know, depending on the coach you get, you could be like, this is great. We're going to create turnovers. We're going to create a lot of offense here. We might give up some things, but, you know, we have a lot of firepower to, you know, overcome that. But there's a lot I had to learn in that way. And again, how do you maximize your game within the system to make yeah. the coach happy and you happy? Yeah, exactly. But then going into your second year, this is where like you took that big step of getting like looked at with NHL teams. So you go to you play 68 games with Lethbridge and then you also play seven games for Team Canada in the World Juniors. So like what was what was like that season like, especially like in the when you're playing for Team USA or Team Canada? Well, that was crazy. That that whole 17 year was a really big step forward. Uh, I, again, I had to ask an agent to be my agent. I remember John Lammers. I went up to John. I was like, Hey man, I need an agent. Would your agent represent me? I met with his agent that day. And then it, he ended up at representing me. It's not like now where kids are getting represented at 12 years old. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I went through that whole 17 year old year, almost just thinking, you know, I never really thought much about the NHL draft. I was more just thinking, Hey, if I can play my best, maybe I could make yeah. this under 17 team Canada team. And, uh, that's what happened at the end of the year. I was, I remember I was in Tabor. I was at, a, I was at something with Devin Setaguchi. I forgot. I was at one of his, I was at his sister's house or his friend's house or whatever. And we we're sitting there and Dean Chanel called or my agent called me 
Ross at the time. And he told me that Dean Schnell just called him that I was going to play for team Canada. Uh, Cause again, we didn't make the playoffs that year with the Lethbridge hurricanes. So uh, yeah, I remember getting, getting home that night, getting ready about two or three days later, hopped on a plane, went to Montreal and started camp there with uh, team Canada flew over to Belarus. My uh, roommate was O'Neill. Forgot his first name. Well, Wes O'Neill. He was supposed to be a top five pick. I don't think he ended up being a top five pick, but he was a pretty good player, a D-man. And I just kind of remember the whole experience in Belarus. It was a pretty cool experience. I played really well, though. You know, I generally played on the fourth line and played some PP, but I had a really good tournament. And apparently that's where the Boston scout, you know, he watched me here and there throughout the year, but that's where uh, he recognized me and he thought I should have played more in that tournament. I remember him kind of talking about uh, but yeah, I ended up having a really good tournament and that's apparently where they decided at that time that Boston, if I was still available in the fifth or sixth round, they were going to take me again. This is all hearsay things I've heard through the, the scout and people, and maybe he could, I'd be in, interested to hear Gordon's thought on what the whole story is, but that that's where apparently they started to reach out and say, Hey, there's a possibility Boston might take, take myself. And I, I believe there was one other team or one or two other teams, um that were kind of in that and that's why they ended up moving up in the fifth round to take me so again I was this was at like 9 a.m on the east coast which is 7 a.m mountain time where I was still yeah. getting home from my graduation right because we were at our we, I was at my safe grad that night so I don't really remember everything that was at play but I just got home and they ended up drafting me yeah and like you go throughout like that time in Belarus and you play well like what what's like the biggest difference you notice from going from like the WHL to like an international competition even like what you what you saw in the, like the pro game like going into international hockey yeah just the ice was bigger i remember thinking wow there's great players from everywhere peter regan was with denmark i believe there yeah. was players from you know other countries other really skilled players i was like holy you know, not only Canada has good players, everywhere else in the world has good players. Evgeny Malkin was playing for Russia. And that was just one player I remember say, like saying to myself, I'm like, I have never seen a kid this good yet. Yeah. Who's my age? He was my age. He was already like a head taller than everyone. He was more skilled. He was faster. And he was just so dominant. And that, that same year, Phil Kessel actually played a year up and lit up that tournament as well. So I just kind of remember playing at that tournament thinking, man, if I want to make the NHL, I got to step my game up because these top players are elite. They're really good. They're dominant and they do so many, so many good things on the ice, but it was a big eye opener for me to see that, Hey, there's a lot of good players at my age. Yeah. So like, what, what do you have to do to, when you see all these guys and like, wow, these are like really good at really good hockey players, really good athletes and just to help yourself get better and like, make them make uh make your case for being uh, one of the best in the world too yeah the biggest thing I was never intimidated by anyone's skill um I was more so intimidated by the strength and I didn't have the strength I didn't have a big frame to put a lot of weight on so I needed to go out and get as strong as I could while not losing as much speed and getting faster so that's you know when you're a lean guy it's a real complicated thing to put on a lot of weight and get faster, right? Like Mitch yeah. Marner, it'd be hard for Mitch Marner to go to 185 pounds, which I had to while maintaining the same speed and agility, yeah. right? 
like Mitch Marner is maximizing 165 pound frame and he's 165 pounds. Why he doesn't need to do that. The way the game was played, then you needed to get bigger while still trying to maintain a level of speed. So that was what I went to work with, with my trainer, Trevor Hardy. He's the one, he actually let me train with him for free for a couple of years because I couldn't afford it. We, our family couldn't afford to pay for the training. And he's the one who took me under his wing. And, and that's the, the biggest thing. There was three actually key factors to it. There's the speed, the skill, and then the mindset. I didn't have a mindset. I don't think yet. I was more so in awe of these people where I needed to flip my mindset and start believing I could achieve these things. So those are the three uh, key factors that changed in my game. And that's what I the others had. Yeah. So then you change your, the way you, you play your game and you go into the third your third year with Lethbridge where you, you put up a career number of points with like six fifty and two or something like that. And so like, what was that third year? Like, and just being able to, to use those past two experiences, the two years prior to get yourself into in a good shape and like a really good, like mindset throughout that third year of, uh, in Lethbridge. Yeah. My third year in Lethbridge was up and down. It started off really good. And then there was a little bit of an issue, um, obviously with my own personal playing time, I thought, and, you know, and even myself as a young player, not knowing how to fully uh, focus on hockey, there's a lot of things that went into it. And there's a lot of blame you can always lay around. I didn't think I had a great year. And even my 19 year old year, I just don't, you know, I had, I had an issue, obviously, with the coach, I had an issue with uh, probably even my own self uh, with how I could focus. And so that my 18 actually year old year was, it was still a career best, but it was still not what I fully expected of myself. Yeah. And, then, and then I asked for a trade that summer and went to Kamloops and Red Deer. And I was ended up playing defense in, in uh, Red Deer as a 19 year old. Uh, and that's pretty much where I thought my career was over until at the end of my 19 year old season, Scott Gordon came to me and asked me, you know, to come play the rest of the season with the Providence Bruins. Uh, I don't think if, you know, Sutter put me on defense, I don't think I fully come back and play the way I can in Providence. I think he made me fully see the game the way it should be seen. And, you know, he, he had a lot of tough love with me. So that experience in Red Deer was one of the hardest, you know, five months of my career in the sense of I thought my career was over. I'm playing defense. I'm not doing well. No one's going to sign me, but I think it prepared me to be ready to go play pro. And then, you know, that as a 19 year old, I went in as a 19 year old played really well. And then they gave me a contract at the end of that, my uh, 19 year old year in pro. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then you go in, you play in red deer for a little bit. And then at the end of the year, you go to province. Like you said, you play 13 games, two goals, four assists for six points. Was, was it like in that first pro goal out of the way? That was against Hartford. It was, I can't remember who was in the, I think it was in the first game, actually. I got it on a four on four. I got a breakaway and I made a little deke and I flipped it on in the glove side. I just remember getting to pro and it was more so the first practice. We went on in the morning for a practice, 20 minutes in, we were done. And I remember asking the, one of the players, I was like, Hey, well, what, what's going on right now? Why are we done? He goes, Oh, practice is only 20, 25 minutes today. Morning skates between 12 and 17 minutes. And he's like, just now you can prepare yourself, go do some skill stuff, whatever you mean. I'm like, wait, practice is over. And he's like, it's over. And I'm like, I love pro because junior practices were like two hours long. Yeah. It was battles. It was a grind. And I, and I remember some days in junior thinking, wow, this is wildly long like crazy. And I'm like, if pro is three hours long, how's pro going to be, you know, but that's when I was like, I love pro. 
I'm going to go as hard as I can for those 20, 30 minutes. And then I'm going to work on my stuff and I'm going to get out of there, you know? And that's, that for me, was a real exciting uh, moment. Cause I was like, wow, I think it's actually easier in a sense, pro than junior. And it was to yeah. me, pro was a lot easier than junior. Yeah. So like, what was that adjustment going in from the WHL to the AHL? And like, especially since we just talked about practices and all that, but like when it comes to like game action, like guys being faster, stronger, like what were some of the adjustments you had to make to be uh, successful at that level? Yeah, it was just stay ready that obviously the brain speed of the pros is much faster. They physically, yeah. they're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, but they all think better. They think the game much better. And I think that actually suited me better because my game is a lot of thinking and moving around and being in space and position. And I think this, the pro game fitted me a lot better than junior junior is a bit of a cluster, you know, guys skating around everywhere, yeah. everyone trying to do things one-on-one. My game was a lot of passing give and goes. And again, a lot of the things I learned, which I wasn't doing in junior, I brought it to pro help my game. So the adjustment for me, I thought was easy because I'm like, wow, every time I get put the puck here, I don't even have to know a guy's there. He's just going to be there because he knows I'm going to put the puck there. Where in junior, a guy could be in front of me, behind me. You don't know. Yeah. So personally, I, you know, some guys have trouble with that because I think the brain, their brain doesn't fully comprehend the entirety of a game because in junior they're physically dominant but when they get to the pros they can't be dominant anymore because everyone's big strong and fast so for me i thought the transition was relatively easy to be brutally honest i, I thought it was more on the physical level like you know i'm 19 i'm only 165 pounds i need to get to 185 next year if i'm going to dominate and that's what i was more focused on was the, the physicalness, like I need to get up about 20 pounds and I need to be ready to bang bodies because, you know, a lot of my game is in and around the net, low plays, give and goes. I need to be physically ready to take on contact. And that's, that year was the biggest thing for me. So I thought a transition to pro was easy. I mean, I went from having 49 points as a 19 year old in junior to having 72 as a 20 year old in pro. Yeah, that, that's a big jump and just like from like the points perspective and then you so then you go in the following season with the Norfolk Admirals. So like what was it like getting uh getting into Norfolk and just being or being able to play Norfolk and like get those 72 points like you said. Yeah, so actually I was with Providence and then I got traded at the trade deadline for Brandon Bochensky finished the year with Norfolk. So I was on a new team had a good you know had a good finish to the season. And then we went to Rockford. That's where the team actually moved. Chicago's team moved from Norfolk to Rockford. And that was a new experience. You know, I had a new coach. I didn't have a good start to the season. I only had one point in my first 10 games. I remember asking for, a. I remember asking uh, Mike Havland, right? I actually had a conversation with my dad. I was like, hey, what's like, why aren't they playing? They're playing me on fourth line and, and all this. And my dad told me to go have a conversation with the coach. And I went and I had a conversation with Mike Havlin and I almost flipped his desk, pretty much screamed at him the whole time. And then he gave me an opportunity and over the next seven games. So this is now in Rockford. I had, a, yeah. you know, 15 points in seven games, really went on a tear. And then I ended up getting called up to play my first ever National Hockey League game in Calgary. So the, you know, the getting traded to Chicago again, going to Norfolk, playing the last 20 games, it was OK. I, I had a good finish again. I didn't play a lot of minutes because you know, they had a deep team in, in yeah. Chicago's farm system. So they didn't play me first line, like Providence was playing me. They were playing me more third line. But then again, I was like, I'm still, I still told Mike Avalon, I'm better than a lot of guys on your second 
in first line, you need to play me like it. That's the following year in Rockford. And when he gave me the opportunity, I made good of it. You know, I ended up finishing with, uh, I think 49 points in 55 games or whatever that season. And so I had a point a game on the way out and, but I, you know, I, I asked for ice time and I showed up when I demanded it. So it wasn't a smooth transition into Chicago going right to the NHL. I had to battle again for ice time, battle for position in a new lineup and show a new coach that he could trust me. Yeah. So you, you go through like that Chicago change with the affiliation to Norfolk to Rockers, like that, that must be a pretty big transition. Like you said, especially going from like being like a guy in Norfolk where uh, you're producing, you're being a, you're a good, uh, good player there. And then you go into Rockford and like, you have to work your way back up. You're being on the fourth line and like, you're working your way up. So like, what was that adjustment? Like, and just being able to just continue to develop and take, take that grind, especially in a Rockford. Yeah. It's, it's hard, right? Again, like I said, you go into Providence, you're, you're lighting it up in Norfolk and then you get to Rockford and everyone always thinks the grass is greener on the other side. But when you have something good with a coach and a team, like it, it, leave, don't, don't, I mean, you don't need to leave. Even you see all these guys in the NHL, they always leave if the grass is green and they go somewhere else and all of a sudden they're on the second or third line. Right. And the coach already trusts other players more than them. So that was the first real um, time where I understood that there's a business to it. And there's a transition period with the coach. You got to make the coach trust you. You got to, again, how do you maximize yourself within this new system? And in the first 10 games, obviously with Rockford, I didn't do it very well. But after that, uh, when I started to get more ice time and more minutes, that's where I started to play really well and, and show what I could do. So that, that also was a time where I realized that just skill wasn't going to get me to the NHL. You know, there's already Patrick Kane just came in um Patrick Sharp uh you know Martin Havlat the wings were pretty loaded like the the wings in Chicago were pretty loaded yeah. and I was like if I'm going to get into the NHL I, I can't just play right wing I need to play left wing and I need to be able to fight and I need to be able to check and I need to be able to do other things so I kind of took it on myself that year to get in more fights to check a little bit harder to be a little bit more of a rat I guess and that's, if you look at my penalty minutes, I had 175 penalty minutes that year, but that's where I started to kind of morph my game into, you know, being a little, Hey, if I have to make the NHL as a third liner, then that's what I got to do. And that, that transition started to take place in Rockford. Yeah. And like, while you're in Rockford, like in that central division, the AHL, like there's a ton of great teams between the Wolves, Admirals, Griffins. It's like, who are some of like your biggest rivals during that time in, in Rockford? Oh, Chicago. The Wolves games were war. I, I And that was the first year Chicago went back to Rockford. And there was always an issue with the Wolves and the Blackhawks, right? And so when we would come from Rockford to play in Chicago, the Wolves fans hated us. It, it was literally war. There was line brawls every night. There was crazy line brawls, like crazy. We played each other 14 times. We played each other in the playoffs. We lost to them in game seven. It was... I mean, I look back on my entire pro career and that Chicago Wolf Rockford rivalry that first year was probably the craziest, you know, it's a top, you know, with the Red Wings and Hawks, obviously that's NHL. Yeah. But if I look at over the total hatred, the fighting, like the, it was violence. Like it was crazy. Like it was a crazy um, rivalry and there was, you know, no inch of room on the ice. 
it was wild. It, I mean, you could go back and look at all the line brawls. It was every single night there was a line brawl against them. And then we played them 14 yeah. times. It was the craziest rivalry I played in one of them. Yeah. And like, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Wolves fan. So like, I remember those, those rivalry days, like it's definitely gotten like better, but like though during that time, like it was worse. And like, so like, what are some of like some good stories from that came from like that rivalry? Yeah. There was one time there was a big line brawl on the ice. I jumped Scredding. Was it Scredding or strength Stred? Um, he was uh, the leading scorer for the Wolves. Uh, one Sterling. Of Sterling. There yeah. was Hadar, Sterling, Krog. They were kind of their top line. And I remember there was a big line brawl and uh, Boris Vlavic jumped Frazier and beat up Frazier. And then David Kochi, I think it was, and all these guys are trying to get at him. I got on the ice. I jumped uh, Scred. What's his name again? Sterling. 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 I jumped Sterling. I ended up getting kicked out of the game. I get into the tunnel and we called up this guy from uh, or college hockey. I still don't know the guy's name. We called him up from college hockey. I'm already hauled off the ice. And in Chicago, there's the two tunnels, right? You come off together at the end zone. And there's all the police officers and everything standing there. They take uh, me off the ice and then they take Andre DeVoe off the ice. So DeVoe's coming off the ice. And this college guy calls DeVoe a chicken shit or whatever he called him. DeVoe then swings his stick at him and misses this guy's head by like an inch. The cops then grab the college guy in his suit and throw him out of the building. Like he gets thrown out of the building. And I'm now freaking out thinking, I'm like, where's the college guy? The college guy's gone, right? And this is a funny story. Kevin Cheveldayoff comes down and he's, he's the co or GM of the Wolves at the time. And I'm calling him a fat piece of shit. I'm calling uh, the building owner. This is a story that is one for the ages. You know, I'm like, you guys threw my buddy out. I don't even know the guy's name. Like you guys threw him out of the building. And uh, they like, now I'm in like a full Nelson, right? In the town yeah. in Chicago. And I'm screaming at Kevin Cheveldayoff, telling him I'm going to fight him, right? I'm telling um, the building owner, I'm going to fight him. There's like, it's a melee down there. Yeah. We, we then come in the room, we come out, they won't let us leave the building. You know, it was like, and then all of a sudden we open up the garage and the kids at the top of the tunnel waiting to get on the bus. And I'm like, I told you they threw him out. Cause no one knew who the kid was. Right. Yeah. And they're like, there's, there's no college kid. I'm like, there's a college kid. He got thrown out of the building, you know, and he's at the top of the tunnel. So we get up there and he's sitting there in like the rain, basically like shivering. <laughs> we get him on the bus, but that was like, that was just another day playing the wolves. It was crazy. Like, again, that, that whole melee, the whole story. Uh, if I ever have time to tell the whole story, it, it's one for the ages, but it was a wild, wild game. And it was a wild rivalry. Yeah. That, that rivalry goes deep. I can name so many line brawls and bench brawls during that, during those Rockford wolves games. Like they're definitely, you definitely search them up on YouTube and like, they're all there right there. Yeah. It was crazy we also had a good one with milwaukee too yeah but it wasn't we'll, compared to the wolves like nothing yeah but just, then uh yeah yeah and then uh you go from being in rockford to getting your first nhl game with the chicago blackhawks like what was what was like that first nhl game like and just being able to like be the first one out for warm-ups and do your do your rookie lap and all that yeah, they didn't, they didn't do rookie laps then. There's, wow. Yeah, there's no rookie laps in 2007. <laughs> so I got called. I was on the way to the rink. Al McIsaac called me, told me I was going to get called up and that I had to get to Chicago because we were flying to Calgary. Calgary is obviously my hometown. So I called all my friends and family. 
I told them I was going to be playing, you know, in front of them, my first ever game. So my mom was there, my dad, uh, my stepdad, my grandparents, Oma, everyone was there, old coaches, friends, everyone. So I, I think I had end up having over about a hundred people at the game wow. in the saddle dome in Calgary, you know, in three years prior, I was on the red mile cheering for the flames, you know, like three years after that, I'm now lined up my, I have a picture of it against Jerome McGinley. And I remember looking at Jerome McGinley, like almost wanting to like touch his face. Like, are you real? <laughs> or is this a video game? You know? And then me. Me, yeah. And then he gave me a cross check right off the face off. And I realized, Holy, I better get into it or he's going <laughs> to knock me out. You know, he's going to give me a good shot here. So it was, uh, it was a surreal moment. I still remember the warm up looking around, seeing all friends, family, seeing their faces on the other side of the glass and them looking at me almost thinking yeah. what they're thinking like, wow, you know, he's made it, he's here. Yeah. that That's awesome. That's unreal. So then you, in 2008, 2009, that's like your first like mainstay in, in the NHL plays 70, 78 games with the Hawks. And like, you're there for like when like the dynasty's building, like what was that year like? And just like, did you have a sense that the next year was going to be special? Well, that, that's kind of like the long lost year. Like no one really talks about 2008, nine. And that's the year that put hockey back on the map in Chicago. You know, yeah. you see some of the best youth programs in the country are in Chicago. And I would argue that they started to explode in 2007, eight, nine. Right. Yeah. That team was an elite team. It was uh, a lot of young players that had coming out parties and we were, we ended up losing to the Detroit Red Wings in five games, you know, and three of those games, I think went to overtime. So it was, we weren't supposed to beat Calgary in round one. We weren't supposed to beat Vancouver in round two. We played Detroit to go to the Stanley cup for finals who we lost to in round three. And I remember after playing Detroit, we all went to a bar back home and there was two, 3000 people just standing there watching us drink beer. Wow. And that's kind of when we knew like, Hey, like imagine winning a Stanley cup in this city. Like these people, love hockey and they just haven't had that love for hockey in a long time because it was off tv it just wasn't in their face now they have a lot of young players that they can rally around especially Kane and Hayes and Keith and Sieves and you know those guys so that was a I think that whole year was a coming out party in the sense wow imagine winning a Stanley Cup here now and we knew we had one year to do it right we yeah. we had a salary cap issue that was about to happen and that's what I think makes that 2009-10 team the most impressive is we had one year to do it and we did it. Yeah, so then you go into that 2009-2010 season, you guys put on a phenomenal season, you go into the playoffs. So like, what was that year like? And just like being like, having that one year to do, to win the champion, Stanley Cup, and then to be able to do it, like that, that's incredible. It was a crazy, it was just those two years are all kind of meshed in one for me. I almost can't even tell them apart. Uh, the only difference is Hosa and Havlat, right? Yeah. Obviously we get Hosa the one year, Havlat the year prior, but um, yeah, it, it was a year that we talked about it at the start of the year. I remember even the year prior to that, Dale Talon having a talk saying, hey, imagine Michigan Ave being full of people, you know? Yeah. So that was like where the first seed was implanted into our mind. But that next year, we just started off on the right foot. We were winning, you know, we we're always hanging out together. We we're going for lunch together. We we're going for dinner together. And it was just a team that, you know, cared deeply about each other, whether it was on or off the ice. And so, you know, from day one of the season till the end of the season, when we won, it was just a team that, uh, 
every single day. Again, we're, we're always around and, and we did it together. So, you know, when you lift the Stanley cup, you're proud for yourself, but you're also ecstatic for your friend. And that was a moment. I remember Kane passed me the Stanley cup and I gave it to Jalmerson. I was just as happy getting the cup and holding it for myself as I was passing it to watch Nicholas Jalmerson lift it for the first time. So it was, it was a wild roller coaster of a year. I mean, two, two, three million people at their parade, right? Yeah. Seeing, you know, grown men and women crying because you win the Stanley Cup first time in 49 years. It was, uh, it was a lot of relief on a city and it was a lot of excitement for us. And I don't think we quite understood what we did at the time, but you know, you look back now and it was really special. Yeah, for sure. And like you go through, you go through playoffs, like where it's, you guys have had to battle like all throughout playoffs and then you get into the Stanley Cup and you go all the way to game six, I believe. And like Kane gets that, gets the goal in overtime to win it. Like what, what was the feeling like when Kane did score that, that game winner? And like, did you know that it went in at first? No, I didn't know it went in. I remember looking at Brower on the bench and I asked him and he said, he didn't know. I thought it hit the goalie shaft and went into the netting. So I was actually looking in the netting for the puck. And then kind of by that time, I saw Kane skate by me with no gloves on and everyone's like, is it in the net? And we're like, holy shit, I think it's in the net. So I come on the ice and I see everyone throwing their stuff off. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's it's actually in the net. So I throw my stuff off and I'm I'm almost saying it in my head. I'm, if we if I throw my shit off and it's not in the net and we get scored against, this is going to be bad. So then I remember jumping because I'm like, everyone else is celebrating. So we must celebrate. And I remember jumped on to everyone. And then I looked down the ice and that's where we were just staring to see what the ref was doing. And I saw the ref go in and grab the puck out of the net. And that's where we knew. And we also got word from the bench roughly around the same time that it was in the net. So I did not know at the time. I still never seen the puck go in the net. All I know is I was looking in the meshing because I, I it made a weird noise. It was like a yeah. thump, you know, so it obviously hit that back pad or, you know, maybe it hit the metal piece on the net on the bottom really hard to make a thunk, but yeah, I still remember the sound. And there was only one guy that knew that it was in the net the, the entire time that was Kane. And then you go on to, I'm pretty sure it's a hell of an after party after. Yeah, it was, it was great. We, you know, we partied in the room, all our friends and family are in there. We went to Harry Carey's when we got back, we went to the pony I think around 10 o'clock we went to bed and went back up and did it again it was uh it was a wild wild time wild ride you know the the craziness about 2010 is we shared it with the city right like everywhere yeah. we went we tried to bring it to all the bars we tried to bring it to all the restaurants we tried to make sure every establishment that we ever ate at or went to for drinks or went to for breakfast we tried to make sure they all got to see it just for a second. Right. That's what we really tried to do in 2010. And that's why I think it made it so special. Yeah, absolutely. So then you, uh, you then have the, have the parade in Chicago where there's 3 million people there. What, what's the feeling like when you're on the flow and with the Stanley cup and like there's 3 million people out there just cheering for your name and cheering for the team. Yeah, we, I think we turned on Madison and go down there and there's already kind of people there. And I was like, well, oh, this is pretty cool. I can't remember the road we turned on, but we made a left. And then all of a sudden it was a sea of people. And I'd never seen that much people in my life. And you look up in the skyscrapers and there's confetti falling out of the skyscrapers. And, you know, you look at your mother and your father and your brothers and, you know, and you're looking at all them, looking at it kind of like, is this real? Like, this is a real yeah. moment. Yeah, it's, uh, it was breathtaking. 
you know, it was, I've never seen that many people as in 2910 at that parade in my life. It, it was crazy. And just the whole, just the whole atmosphere, you know, once the last float would go by, which was Kane and Taze, I believe, you know, you see thousands of people running after it. It was, yeah. it, it was crazy. And it's something that, you know, it's obviously, I got a win again in 2015, but that 2010 parade to me was just off the charts. It was I mean, the amount of people 2015 was just yeah. off the charts too, but 2010 to me was still more, I, you know, between, yeah, just the way the route was built, I think. Yeah. And it's the first one in 49 years. Like there's no, no better team to do it than that team. But then you go on to, you go on to, for a little bit of a journey between 2011 to 2015, where you finally get back with the Hawks in 2014, 2015. So like what, what was that season like and just like being able to host the cup for a second time? Yeah, season was an up and down. You know, I started that season hurt. I got healthy. I played really good for 30 games and I was doing really well. And then I broke my hand at the winter classic game. And after I broke my hand, I was off for about two months, came back, didn't play very well, and then got back in around the playoffs you know, and I wasn't playing my best hockey. And then I got to play in actually the Stanley cup finals and kind of flipped my game again and played really good hockey in the cup finals. So that year was an up and down, like from, you know, being hurt, to playing really well, to getting hurt again, to playing, not great, to playing well, to winning. It was like, talk about highs and lows of a year. And uh, it was, it wasn't fun at times. It was fun at times. And I'm thankful that it ended the way it did. But yeah, that was definitely a year I look back and, you know, you had to be as resilient as you could just because the injuries and the issues, especially knowing what you could do when you were healthy. Right. Yeah, but exactly. you know, to end up winning and doing it with the guys again was just mind blowing. But that performance Duncan Keith put on in that playoffs is, you know, not talked about enough. That was the most yeah. dominant I've ever seen a D-man. Yeah, for sure. And like he, he was one of like the, he was the top defenseman in the in the whole entire playoffs that season that that year and like you just so you see him he scored he scored uh the game winner in what was it game five game six or, yeah. or game six against tampa and then Kane puts that empty netter in and so like what what was it about like that last game game six in the stanley cup finals that brought you guys on top crawford with the shutout as well Crawford was playing great. There was a couple bounces here and there that went our way. I thought we just played solid that, you know, it was interlocked until there was nothing much going on though. I think Stamkos missed a breakaway, but there wasn't much going on until Dunk scored that goal. And then you could start to feel we were starting to come. And then, you know, from like three minutes left in the game, we we're only up by two goals, but you could start to yeah. sense that, you know, we, we kind of had it on lock. They weren't getting a lot of chances, a lot of good quality chances, I don't think. But yeah, it was it was it was a different feeling to the end of that game as it was in 2010. Like 2010 was like, oh my gosh. In 2015, it was the last minute, two minutes, you could enjoy it. You're like, we're gonna win. Like, yeah, you know, it was just a different feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Does it does the raising the Stanley Cup for the second time like still feel the same as it did the first time? It's different. To me, anyways, I thought it was an amazing feeling. Again, it's a sense of relief. You're just yeah. so happy for yourself, your family, your city, their organization, everyone you're representing. That's still there. The first time was more, it was like a movie. It was almost like, yeah. holy crap, this is not real. 
this is like, I'm actually holding the Stanley cup. The second time holding the Stanley cup was like, Oh yeah, this is great. You know, this is, it was just a different feeling, but it was also an amazing, incredible feeling in itself. One, I think the second one for me was more defined as relief than yeah. anything like, you know, this has been a hard year and to win this thing again with these guys is amazing. Where the first time was like, Oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on, but this is wild. You know, like it was yeah. just different for me but I'm sure everyone can answer that different. Yeah, absolutely. But like, it's always, it's always fun raising that trophy at the end of the season when you go through those ups and downs throughout the season, then you come up, come up on top. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was a great year. That, that 2015 team was real special. A lot of great players. Yeah, absolutely. So then, but so then you go on the following year to the Carolina Hurricanes, the Los Angeles Kings. Then you play two years near your hometown in with the Calgary Flames like what were those years like before going going overseas to to Russia they were good Carolina was pretty good and then LA we had uh we lost in round one to San Jose but for me to finish my career in Calgary in front of friends and family was amazing you know I thought that last year in Calgary was only going to be a one-time thing but I ended up yeah. having a really good season where I got re-upped where you know, I didn't think I was going to, I also knew my hip was kind of on its last legs, <laughs> to be honest. Like I, I had to get needled, dry needled in my hip two to three times a week, just to make sure my muscles were loose enough in order for my yeah. leg to move. So those last three years, you know, my last year in Chicago, you know, where the hip retore when I was with the Hawks to playing in Carolina, to play in LA and Calgary, you know, that was a grind. I probably could have done the surgery a little sooner, and that's why, again, I went to Switzerland and they wouldn't sign me because insurance wouldn't cover my hip because it was so torn and so bad. So that uh, that for me, maybe I could have done it earlier to help it out a bit. But I, I almost knew that I didn't have much time left with it. So I might as well just battle through it and try to maximize my time. I wish I could have finished that year in Calgary. You know, our power play, I think that, you know, my second year in Calgary was a big reason why we didn't make the playoffs because we were pretty close to making the playoffs. Yeah was just you know i i couldn't turn anymore it was like an ice pick fully shoved in there and uh when it fully tore but it was uh it was an amazing experience to play in front of friends and family to finish and i loved calgary i loved it brad Trelevin to me is still a person that i i deeply admire yeah and i feel like once you go like to finish off your career or your nhl career and like near home like there's no better feeling and like you're just comfortable where you are and like you're within driving distance from your family. It's like, it just helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a cool last played my last ever game in Las Vegas. So I was able to play every single team, you know, in the NHL in yeah. my era, um, played my first game in Calgary against Calgary, played my last game for the flames. So it was a, it was a pretty cool finish. Yeah, absolutely. So then you go the next two years to end your career. You go from the KHL to the SHL. So like, what, what was that year like? And just going off, going from the KHL and then playing the SHL. KHL was good. I mean, it was tough. I got sick there. So I was really sick for like the first two or three weeks. And then finally, when I started to get healthy and feel fine, that I was just, you know, there, I just, I ended up going home, right? It was just a lot going on from being sick, not, you yeah. know, not going well in that respect overall like the guys were great the team treated me fine there was no issues like that I just know I, I ended up going home and ended up signing about four months later with a Swedish team 
finished the season in Sweden, had a pretty good finish. I was ended up going to get my hip fixed again after that. And then thought I could take one more chance at the NHL because I had a good finish to Sweden here. And that's where I came back and I was going to play in the A and really try to help those guys in the A as well. So I knew that was the contract I took, but I also thought I could, you know, if I played well, maybe I could get another yeah. chance in the A. But, you know, when I was down in the A and it was just hard for me to get into the games mentally. And I felt that I was screwing the kids over that are there fully engaged, mentally ready to play every night. And I'm just there, you know, I'm given a hundred, but I'm not, you know, uh, you know, it's just, I just didn't think it was fair to the kids. So I ended up, you know, retiring and going to play team Canada kind of laid it all on the line. One last time played at the Spangler cup, had a really good tournament. We won the whole thing and then broke my foot in the finals. So that kind of told me right there. Cool. I was yeah, but you go in, you go into win, or you go into the Spangler Spangler Cup, and you guys end up getting a winning the whole thing, even though you got injured and and everything. But what was the feeling like to get that to be that champion in the Spangler Cup? Because that's a that's another hard competition to win. Yeah, it's really hard. Yeah, and uh, had a goal, you know, in the in the championship game, set up the game winner too, and it was just kind of like one last time for me to be able to tell myself I can compete on a big stage and I can yeah. still score big goals and be a part of big moments. Obviously I couldn't play the entire third period because my foot was, my arch was broken, but yeah. you know, to go into that game one last time on a big stage, uh, big performance and just to be able to, again, I'm not, you don't have to go around telling people, but for myself to be like, Hey, I could still do this if I needed yeah. to. It was a good, you know, pat on your own back. That's what to me was a great feeling. And then I had friends on the team, Scotty Upshaw and a lot of other guys that we got to all win together. You know, we all kind of retired from the NHL at the same time. We knew that was it for us and we all retired together. So it was a cool moment too. Yeah, for sure. That That's awesome. And a friend of the show was actually on that team. He was your goalie. He was after Cali. He wanted me to say, say what's up yeah. to you. He was amazing. He played amazing. Yeah, like you guys, you got that whole team like played amazing. I, I remember like Zach telling me about that team and like you guys all were were like really good with that team. And like it, it just proves at the end of the day when you win a championship for this for Team yeah, Canada. We smoked everyone. It was crazy. <laughs> then I think it was I think I, I think we only had like two goals scored against us all tournament. Like oh, that's, that's crazy. But we had a full NHL lineup almost, yeah. right? Like we had yeah. Every single guy on our team almost played, you know, there's Eric Fair, Daniel Winnick, you know, those were even role players on that team too, right? Yeah. Like great penalty killers, um, Upshaw. So we were just, we would have been a horrible team to play against. You guys for, were stacked. Yeah. For European hockey, they must've been thinking they're going to throw sauce everywhere and they're getting hit and checked. It must've been horrible for them. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, that's what made that's what makes it fun when you go out there win. Like, just play play your heart out. Like, that's that's all yeah. that matters. Yeah, the guys did awesome. They're a great group of guys. Yeah, absolutely. But I have a few more questions for you before we wrap things up here. So, uh, do you have any tips for hockey players looking to get to that next level? Well, there's always other. You know, look at what your competition's doing. Look at what other guys ahead of you are doing. What can you do? You know, you don't always have to work harder. What can you do to work smarter? Is it something to do with technique? Is it something to do with, you know, internal drive motivation? Yeah. So there's always something that you can look at to be better. Um, I actually built clever for this reason. Soon you're going to be able to look out for third party coaches. If you need a shooting coach, if you need a skill coach and you need a little bit of extra help, 
uh, virtually, that's what Clever is for. So hopefully that can be something that can help make players better, which I believe it will, and it already has been working. So um, there's numerous ways to do it. There's numerous things to look at to do it, but what what's someone else doing that you see is working for them that you can implement into what you can do? Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip. And like, so like going into Clever, like what are, is the origins behind Clever and like just building the app and like building like that third-party coaches, like you said? Yeah, there's two reasons. There's a bunch of parents asking me to look at their kids' clips, whether it be them shooting a puck or in-game, and they wanted me to teach over it and send it back. There's just no tech that efficiently allowed me to get a clip, yeah. upload it, draw on it, voice it over, and share it. That process was like 50 minutes before, and that's where I'm like, I just want to create something that can do that in a second. Yeah. So I can basically do 36 shot annotations in under an hour. So 36 kids could send me a shot, and I could do 36 kids in an hour where it would take me 36 days before, right? Yeah. So that's what we did is we've streamlined the entire experience. And why I did it, another reason is everything's too expensive now. Hockey's too expensive soccer's too expensive sports too expensive so what way can we give kids now coaching tools or tools that allow the one percent to get better virtually what can we give them now to allow everyone to do it virtually right yeah. and there's a team we have in san diego that we partnered with you know they only get one hour ice a week so they have to use this type of coaching tool in order to help their kids get better off the ice so that's what we're doing now is how can we give everyone the ability to have coaching tools that only the 1% has and, and empower, you know, good coaches to do great things. Yeah, that that's awesome. So do you, where do you see this going in the future and just like growing the platform yeah. even more? Yeah, we're going to be the number one sport marketplace on the planet. Soon you can come on to Clever. You can look up Chris Versteeg. You could send me your kid's shot. I can annotate it. You could also buy coaching packages off me for U7 or, you know, I coach U7 players. I have practice plans uh, for a more comprehensive breakdown of those practice plans. You could reach out. You could have a personalized experience. It's not just, hey, let's go find this drill and put it. Yeah. Let's learn how to create practices. Let's teach other coaches to be better coaches. You know, that's what we plan to be. We plan to be the number one marketplace in the world to search for this type of stuff. Yeah, that that's awesome. And just that's awesome what you're doing just helping everyone else because like hockey is super expensive like we all know and like it's just gonna get more expensive honestly it's bad so bad yeah so go go get the clever app and uh and uh go go on the platform and learn learn from yourselves from the christopher steeg yep soon yeah absolutely but uh my final question for you is um were you a prankster always yeah what, what what has been your favorite prank that you that you pulled wow there's tons we always like the leaners right you go put a leaner yeah. on someone's door full of water and knock on it there's i also do tons of uh i've done a ton of prank phone calls i used to i actually prank phone call my mom one time at school <laughs> she was teaching in school and i called her as a sales rep of a company and she's like are you calling me in school right now and i'm like <laughs> yeah well do you not want to buy this dishwasher you know and <laughs> she called me after school freaking out about some guy calling her in school trying to sell her a dishwasher so like those are things that i always did yeah yeah th those are awesome just like any any prank that gets a laugh out of people like it's it's worth doing as oh, no, yeah. no matter what as long as it doesn't hurt anyone like that's all that matters exactly yeah i did a ton i used to prank phone call Devin setaguchi's whole family <laughs> yeah his uncle would be swearing at me on the phone you know <laughs> yeah that, that's unreal but uh who doesn't love a love a good prankster yeah seriously seriously 
Yeah, but uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to following your work the rest of the way. Awesome. Thank you very much. Take care. Yeah, you too.